A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, starting with verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people, the Lord replied. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people in the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and you will and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how he lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from coming wrath. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The Pharisees went off and plotted how they might entrap Jesus in speech. 
they sent their disciples to him with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are a truthful man and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And you are not concerned with anyone's opinion for you do not regard a person's status. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not? Knowing their malice, Jesus said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin that pays the census tax. Then they handed him the Roman coin. He said to them, whose image is this and whose inscription? They replied, Caesar's. At that, he said to them, then repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. The gospel of the Lord. Good to be with you all, as always today. Um, it's my favorite part of the week. <laughs> I look forward to it every week, and it's not, I don't think it's just because I'm up here and have been preparing for this all week. I, I really do believe that there's something really special that happens as we gather together, as we worship together, as we come to the table of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. All right, so throughout the Old Testament story that we read today, Moses is trying to get clarity from God. He, God promises he's going to be with them, but Moses wants God's full self, his full presence to be with them. He doesn't want a messenger, doesn't want a representative, doesn't want an angel. He wants God fully. He wants to know God fully. And in trying to reassure Moses, God says something kind of odd. It's a really odd construction. He says, my face will come and I will give you rest. The word face is often translated presence in our readings. But can you imagine saying that to somebody? So somebody invites you to dinner, and then you say, well, I I can't really fully go with you, but my face will go with you. What? What does that even mean? Or you even just say, my presence will be there. First of all, that sounds really snobby or whatever, (laughs) but but what does that even mean? How do we detach oneself from one's person? And this is Moses' question. What does it mean that your face, God, is going to go with me or your presence? I want you to fully go with us. Well, God seems to be doing something interesting here. He's simultaneously assuring Moses that he'll be there. He will be with them. They'll have exactly what they need, but he's also saying he won't overwhelm them with something they're not ready to receive. He can do both of those things at the same time. Again, Moses wants to see God's full splendor, full glory, so he kind of keeps pushing back. That's the Old Testament reading. Moses is trying to understand how will God be with us, and then, God, I want to see you more. So it's both of those things at the same time. And God keeps reassuring Moses, but acknowledging to Moses, he will see God, but he won't see it on Moses' terms. He will see God on God's terms, God's grace, God's revealing. Why? Because God always knows what's best for us. Always. We saw this elsewhere in Moses' life. So at the burning bush, you remember Moses is invited to go to this burning bush to draw close, but then he's told to take his shoes off because it's holy ground. So he's like, draw close. All are welcome. You are here. But remember and recognize this thing you're drawing near to is going to change everything. It's going to change everything that you are. It's powerful. God always desires our good, and that's a full stop. 
If you've heard that different before, if you've heard other preachers say, well, sometimes God wants your good, but sometimes God has a bigger purpose and your good isn't really. No, God always wants our good. (laughs) He wants what is right and, and true and good in the world. And there are times where God only reveals to us that which we can handle in the moment. We often don't have categories for what's happening. When God is present in a place, God's kingdom come, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven, we don't often have categories for that. We don't don't know what that looks like for the change that he's going to do in the world. And God reveals himself at the level that is most appropriate to us. One example of mine or that comes to mind for me is um, uh, the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So his entire public life, we could say, was lived pointing to a world that did not yet exist. He's pointing to a world that he doesn't see. That's the whole idea of the dream, right? That there is something that we're moving towards or something that we're pointing towards, but we don't see it clearly. His last sermon was called, I've Been to the Mountaintop, um, soon before he died. And in it, he basically says, there's a lot I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to live much longer. But he says, but I know that I've heard something from God. I know that I've been to the mountaintop. Here's what he says. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. And then he quotes scripture. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So he recognizes, I've seen this glimpse. I don't know what all the future looks like, but I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen this. You know, in our modern church, I think we become really comfortable with very familiar language about God. And I understand why. You know, we casually talk about God as our friend. We sing intimate worship songs easily, even in the, on the radio, in our cars. We have chats with Jesus. I think so much of that is a helpful corrective from some of us grew up in churches or our parents grew up in churches or our grandparents where God is distant and really far away and kind of judging us from a distance and cold, unmoving. And so there's kind of been a reaction to that in more intimate and familiar uh, talk about God. But we can't ever forget being in a relationship with God is not casual. It's serious business. And it changes everything. It changes us and it changes the world. So God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord. So in other words, though Moses cannot see God's glory fully, God shows him something about his character, his goodness, his graciousness, his mercy. And then it says, I always find this fascinating, that Moses sees God's back. (laughs) Not his face, but his back. God says to Moses, he will hide Moses in the cleft of the rock. And he says, I will cover you with my hand. Now, you probably, if you've been around church much in your life, you probably have heard that term, the cleft of the rock, in song, Right? The old song written by a young minister named Augustus Toplady, the most British name I've ever heard in my entire life. But on a stormy day in 1763, he was caught in the cliffs nearby Cheddar Gorge. Yeah, that's where the cheese is named after. In the west of England. And he found shelter in a cave. 
And he recalls this story that we just read of God hiding Moses in the cleft of a rock. Um, and he writes this song. If we think about it, this idea of hearing God's nature or God's goodness, this is really what Moses and the people needed. They wanted a manifestation. They wanted to see God's clear, God clearly. But what they needed is to be reminded that he's good to hear his goodness and his character proclaim that he will always go with them and he wants what's good for them. Now, this is not the kind of thing that we can, or God's people can ever conjure up. They can't make God appear. That's actually how people thought about pagan gods in the ancient world, that if they do something for the pagan gods, they can get the gods to do something for them. But that's not how the one true God works. No, it's on his terms, it's not on their terms. His presence is with them, not because they've offered the right sacrifice or they've done the right dance or song or anything like that, but simply because of his great love for them. Even this image of Moses seeing God's back may be an indication that God is leading them, that they're to follow behind him and trust him because he's taking them into a new world. They can't see everything now, but they can trust that he goes before them. All right, so this idea of seeing God is tricky. You know, how do we think about this? Well, the New Testament, Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. And he says that in Jesus, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell. In other words, when we see Jesus, we see clearly the nature of God. Prophets only saw a glimpse of that. But we see in Jesus the fullness of God. In fact, St. Augustine said the words which the Lord said to Moses point us to Jesus. And then Paul says elsewhere that when we, in God's new world, we will see him face to face. In fact, the early church father Origen looked at this story, that we, this Old Testament story, and said, you know that rock in which Moses hides? That rock is Jesus. <laughs> Again, I love that about the church fathers. They're always looking at Old Testament passages and they're going, yeah, that's Jesus. Oh, look, look closely. That's Jesus right there. In Christ, we see the fullness of God. That doesn't mean we can figure God out or that God's glory is not in any way hidden to us. Of course he is. It means that God's full glory rests in the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the full expression of who God is. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. And God's people, as God's people in Christ, we can trust he is with us no matter our circumstances. And at the same time, as we trust that God is with us, we have to remember God's presence is serious business. He will change us and everything will change. In our epistle reading, Paul is writing to a young church. They're maybe a few months old and they've already faced a lot of difficulties. So they've been persecuted. Some of them have died. And Paul reminds them when he first arrived with them, he saw three things in them that were signs that God was with them. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. These are three things that are fruit of a life in community, Paul says, that is in the Father, in Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit. All right, so think about these three things for a minute. Faith, love, and hope. These are things that are cultivated over time. They happen and they emerge over time, and each of them requires a different kind of hard work. So think about faith, first of all. Faith is something that's cultivated over time in response to God's grace. 
So every day, the Christ follower orients ourselves towards God and says, God, I trust you. I bring my thoughts, my attitudes, my behavior in alignment with your trust or with, with that trust in you. Then we look at love. Love also requires consistent cultivation. In fact, later in the letter, Paul speaks of love as a kind of thing that it's almost like you have to do physical labor <laughs> to cultivate. Like love is, is hard work. It's, it's difficult. It's challenging. And that's so opposite from how we think about love today often. We often think of love as something we fall into, not something that we work on. But true love means when things get difficult, we have the opportunity for greater fruit to emerge in response to greater effort. I love how C.S. Lewis said, don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. I love that. I love that about the love than the loving. <laughs> Finally, there's hope. So faith, love, and hope. Hope is the work of patience, and it's cultivated over time. We live in such a cynical world now, and I think hope is such a challenge, but it's remembering that we, have a, we do have a hope, trusting in that and being patient, even when the world around us doesn't show signs always of that hope. So Paul looks at the Thessalonians. He says they have these three things, faith, love, and hope. Why these three things? Why identify these three things? Because they're descriptors of God. God is a faithful one. God is loving. God is the hopeful God. The church has become and are to become imitators of himself. They've been changed by God's presence with them. All right, great concepts, all this stuff. But how, what does this look like in real life? What does it mean? How do we develop or how do we see developed these things of faith, hope, and love? Well, throughout church history, the church has embraced disciplines of formation that shape who we are. The idea here is whatever we do over and over and over again shapes us. It changes us, okay? So if you eat pizza every day, that will shape you in a certain way that is different than if you eat kale every day, right? Probably true. If you go to the gym every day, that will probably shape you differently than if you play video games every day, right? Like whatever we do, those are just superficial examples, but whatever we do over and over again changes us. It shapes us. One of the reasons why Christians have historically received communion regularly is in some sense you are what you eat, <laughs> that whatever you do over and over again forms us. So we are being formed as what's called a Eucharistic people, which is a big church word, but Eucharist means thanksgiving, people of thanksgiving. When we experience God's self-giving love for us at the table, somehow we're shaped as a people of self-giving love. So Christians are called to be imitators of Christ. And this is one of the reasons why Christian formation happens in community, that we're to be imitators of, and Paul says it this way, you have become imitators of us and of God. So they're imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy and imitators of God. We need people in community that we can look at and say, I want to follow them as they follow Jesus. This happens in community. So I'm from Oklahoma, you guys know this, um, and growing up, uh, many of my friends and acquaintances I found over time sorted themselves into two different categories. 
They are either Oklahoma Sooner fans or Oklahoma State Cowboy fans. And that became a pretty strong divide and a pretty strong legacy within families. And I would even notice that these different families that were from Oklahoma, their Saturdays during football season would be completely oriented around this one particular event. Now, it happens in the South here, too. We're just a little bit more split in our loyalties here. There it was two, you know, Oklahoma or Oklahoma State. A lot of families would dress themselves up. They would, sh they would take the drive from Tulsa to Norman or Tulsa to Stillwater. They would tailgate all morning long. Then there would be the game. And then after the game, it's either a time of corporate grieving or corporate celebration, right? This is who they are, right? And then what was interesting is I found a lot of these families never went to the schools. They just learned it from their parents who learned it from their parents. And you were either an Oklahoma or an Oklahoma State family. And that's who you were. Well, this is kind of a crude example of how when we imitate, this is a tradition that's passed on through imitation. One family decided long ago the school with which they would align, and it became a heritage. This is, again, a crude rumor of the imitation involved in someone becoming a Christian, that we become part of a people, and it changes not just our Saturdays, but our whole lives. The church has become imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy, but also of the Lord. And then Paul says, they welcome the message in the midst of their affliction. And yet, even though they were afflicted, somehow they responded with joy. And that's not just because they were like, had a lot of grit and determination. It wasn't because they had just great willpower or that they just made it happen. Paul says that's the only the kind of thing that can happen because of the Holy Spirit. That even in the midst of your affliction, joy comes from you. And then in the midst of that, you've become an example to people all over the world, Paul says. This young church, because God is at work in them and also through them. Paul doesn't deny that they're suffering. Their pain is real. Their hurt is real. And he doesn't even look at them and go, good's going to come from your suffering. No. But somehow, the way that the Holy, only the Holy Spirit can do, they have been changed by God's presence even in the midst of their afflictions. And then perhaps the primary way that God's people throughout history have believed that we're shaped is through prayer. Prayer is not just something we do to throw up in the sky and see if it sticks, see if we can get an answer. Prayer is about forming us as well. We are participating in God's work in the world, and then we're being shaped by what God wants in and through our lives. We pray together. We pray prayers like the Lord's Prayer. In a few moments, we're going to pray the prayers of the people together, which are corporate prayers that we bind our hearts together. But we also, and this is what it means to be imitators, we pray together in the way the church has prayed. But it's also important for the Christian to share their heart to God spontaneously. That as you're in a situation where maybe all you can articulate in prayer is, help me, that that's totally appropriate. Or God, I'm struggling right now. Like those prayers matter and they form us. In addition to prayer, this is why scripture reading is important. So if you think about how we hear scripture here on Sundays, we hear it read as a community. The early church, that's the only way they ever read scripture. 
They didn't have Bibles that they took home to their individual houses and then read kind of individually and had a daily reading plan or Bible through the year or anything like that. Those things are great, but they didn't have that stuff. It was every Sunday they came together and they heard the scripture proclaimed. From the very beginning, scripture is a community activity. Now, it's still appropriate for us to read scripture individually because the early church gathered way more often than we do. And so we need to continue to read scripture. But this is formative. It's, it shapes us. It changes us. These spiritual disciplines become like lifting weights. Prayer can be really hard at the beginning, especially. Scripture reading can be a really difficult discipline. So we have to start small. And like lifting weights, it may feel like we pray every day and then we go, I don't know that this is doing anything because this is really helping me. But we trust God is doing something in us. And this is what imitation means, the daily moving towards, turning towards what we want to become. Then in our gospel reading, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees and Herodians about taxes. So interesting. You've got these two political perspectives, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they're trying to rope him into their debate. Okay. The Pharisees at this time are more geared, especially young Pharisees, disciples of the Pharisees, are more geared towards revolutionary impulses. Okay, They, they want a revolution to overthrow the government. The Herodians tended to be more likely to collaborate with and appease the empire in the name of peace. So you've got these two different competing groups. And taxes in the Roman Empire were brutal. And they were required to be paid in Roman coins. So your everyday person that Jesus is speaking to didn't even have Roman coins. But they required Roman coins in order to pay this particular tax. Right before the time of Jesus, there had been a serious revolt and Rome had brutally snuffed it out, killed lots and lots of people. So these two groups are trying to get a sense of where does Jesus stand on our debate? Where's he at on this hot button issue? So they ask him a direct yes or no question. If he's against paying taxes to Caesar, he's trying to incite a revolt. Okay, so we're going to get him. If he's for paying taxes to Caesar, he keeps the peace, but it's not much of a revolution. It doesn't have much of a bite to him. How is he claiming that the kingdom of God is coming when he still just wants to appease the empire? Jesus responds to the question by asking them for a coin. And they give him Roman Roman currency, a silver denarius. What was on the coin? Well, the coin is an image of a man, Tiberius Caesar. And around Caesar's picture in this coin are the words, Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the divine Augustus. So in other words, son of God. Tiberius is the son of God. You could see how the Jewish people who believe in one true God have a problem with this. Like, what? why is he putting son of God on these coins? They wouldn't even want to touch the coin, let alone use it. Even carrying the coin in your pocket could be seen as breaking the second commandment, that you shall have no idols uh, before me. So Jesus' request kind of begs the question, hey, anybody got a coin? Anybody got a Roman coin? And then they're like, uh, yeah, here's a coin. Why are you even carrying that? <laughs> like, like, if you think it's so, like, it almost implicates them here. So we can picture Jesus looking at it with disgust. He says, whose image is on this? Now, Jesus is still willing to handle the coin. That may have annoyed some of the more scrupulous groups. Jesus doesn't have a problem handling the coin. But the crowd reluctantly admits 
It's Caesar's image. And then Jesus says something powerful. When he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, it's like he's saying, well, if this has Caesar's image on it, better give it back to him. And while you're at it, give God what belongs to him. Jesus is brilliant. To those who collaborate with the empire, Jesus has responded with a kind of, a kind of revolution, saying he wants nothing to do with money that bears a false god's image. And yet, he's also saying, pay your taxes. <laughs> this is real-life stuff. We're talking about coins, taxes, oppression. Jesus is not so heavenly-minded he's no earthly good. No, quite the opposite. Frederick Dale Bruner writes, every attempt to make our politics gods or to make the political divine or ultimate, as the far right and the far left are always inclined to do, must shatter on this word of stone. The exchange doesn't end here. If the Roman currency bears the image of Caesar and you're to give it back to him, you better give God the thing that bears his image. Who bears God's image? Human beings. You and me, and even Caesar. This is not just a passage about taxation. What Jesus is after is deeper. Have we given our whole selves to God? Does God have our full allegiance? In their midst, there were these zealous revolutionaries who wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. But for Jesus, and they wanted to violently overthrow the Roman Empire, for Jesus, violence is not the way of the kingdom of God. He can't ever be part of that group. Jesus will ultimately suffer under the violence of the world. He suffers under it and rises again. Still, there are others who want to pacify Rome, the pragmatists who don't want to rock the boat. In the midst of that, Jesus is saying, what competes for your allegiance? Is it zealous nationalism? Is it the empire? Is it pragmatism? What are your idols? Because God is being revealed to you today in me, in Jesus. Life is here, hope is here, and it requires everything. I think this creates a challenge for us. So one of the things, I work with other pastors on some of these readings, and one of the things I think we often want when we read this is we want, okay, let's have a clear perspective on how we're to respond to the government in our day. Like, that's what we should get from this passage. But the problem is Jesus actually creates more problems for us than he gives us answers with this. <laughs> but I think what's so important is admitting that there is a problem. Because if we don't admit that there is a tension there, that there's a struggle in how we respond to earthly authorities and every potential idol in our life, then we just kind of go along with whatever we fall into. But Jesus creates a challenge, challenges us to constantly look at where do our allegiances lie. Christians are not apolitical. It's not that politics don't matter. They do. But they don't matter in the same ways as they matter to those who, who are not Christians. We must acknowledge this problem consistently. consistently ask ourselves, whom do we serve? I'll end with this. If we really believe that God is with us and God is in our midst, that changes everything. Our allegiances, everything. Christians are always in dangerous territory when it comes to money and politics. And I think there's a reason why Jesus often reserves his harshest words for the rich 
and for those who try to conform him to their political agenda. These two things constantly fight to be our God. Money is not wrong in and of itself. Money's necessary in a world like ours. You know that. But every time we possess money, we have to realize there's something dangerous about this. It's merely a, we can be merely a step away from idolizing it. It has power. Politics themselves are not wrong. They're necessary in any society. But when we engage with them, we have to be careful. We're merely a step away from idolizing our political tribe or nation. Allegiance to the one true God will always be difficult in a broken world because we have to give up control. We know God by faith, trusting him even when we don't see him or when we don't see him the way that we want to see him. Yet we can trust that God is with us and he will be, will be with us. So we're reminded this week we can trust God's character, his nature, his heart for us, and God's presence will always change us. And as we trust him, we undergo the difficult work of transformation towards faith, hope, and love. That all may sound like lofty ideas, but it takes place in the nitty-gritty moments of prayer, immersion in God's story, among the poor and the marginalized and the hurting and in the sacraments. And this is what forms our allegiance. May we allow Jesus to reveal our true allegiances as he reveals himself to us. May we trust that God is with us, that he is good and he is gracious. May we be aware of the counterfeit revolutions and appeasements that we face every day. And may we return ourselves to God. Amen.